I'm in a situation which is very frustrating, extremely difficult, and and and, and nobody should ever have to be in this position because it's the pain is so difficult to describe because it's it's almost like I have a cage around me. I walk around, I look like I'm free, but really I'm not. And what happened was through the years, I saw not just me, but I saw all these other women, some of them very young, some of them 30 years old, waiting 10 years for a get. And I said to myself, I can't just stand by now that I know how hard it is and how long it can take to get a get. I have to be an advocate for these people and I have to try to change things. I'm Scott Kahn, and this is The Orthodox Conundrum. This is The Orthodox Conundrum on JewishCoffeeHouse.com. I'm Scott Kahn. Lana Ralbag has been demanding a get from Mayor Kin for 18 years, and still hasn't received it. According to Jewish law, this means that she cannot remarry and is effectively trapped as a type of aguna, a chained woman. Meanwhile, her estranged husband, despite public pressure, intense public pressure, seems to revel in having become the king of the get refusers. He has a YouTube channel and remarried while leaving Lana unable to do the same. He does all of this while claiming to be a religious Jew following halakha. Indeed, he presents himself as the victim of a smear campaign. It's very clear that Merkin's actions are a reprehensible perversion of Jewish law and a massive chilul Hashem, desecration of God's name. Lana's story is tragic, but she is strong and is working to relieve her plight and that of other women in comparable situations. Her case recently was addressed by the Israeli Supreme Court, which we'll hear about shortly. Lana's story is as much a tale of resilience as it is of sadness and frustration. She's a prominent realtor in Rockland County, New York, and the mother of five children, and I was honored to hear Lana tell her story on today's episode. I also spoke with Lana's attorney, Daniel Schwartz, and Keshet Starr, executive director of the Organization for the Resolution of Agunot. Daniel Schwartz is an attorney admitted to practice in New York and Israel. After a career spanning more than 20 years in New York, he and his family made Aliyah in 2016. He is a partner at ABZ Law in Jerusalem. For as long as he's been a lawyer, Daniel has been interested in helping Agunot via the legal system. Keshet Star oversees advocacy and early intervention initiatives designed to assist individuals seeking a Jewish divorce, along with prevention initiatives to eliminate abuse from the Jewish divorce process. Keshet has written for outlets such as The Times of Israel, The Forward, and Haaretz, and frequently presents on issues related to Jewish divorce, domestic abuse, and the intersection between civil and religious divorce processes. Keshet has also authored academic work focused on get refusal and domestic abuse and is a Wexner Field Fellow. One final aside before we get to the interview. As Keshet says during the episode, one of the most important tools we have to prevent future get refusal is the halachic prenup. I think that every rabbi performing a wedding today should insist upon the couple signing a prenup just as signing the ketuvah is standard and required practice. In order to demonstrate the importance of the halachic prenup, Couples who are already married but did not sign a prenup should sign a halachic postnup. To that end, Jewish Coffee House and the Organization for the Resolution of Agunot, ORA, are working together to organize postnup parties where couples who have not yet signed their postnup can do so and encourage others as well. If you are interested in joining, please email me at scott at jewishcoffeehouse.com and we'll tell you how you can participate. Lana Ralbag, Daniel Schwartz, and Keshet Starr, thank you very much for joining me today on the Orthodox Conundrum Podcast. Pleasure to be here. Thanks for having us. We appreciate it. It's really good to be here. I appreciate that you want people to know about this because it's really a terrible situation for not just for me, but for all so many women, including young women who can't get remarried. And it's really a, a big, major issue right now. Well, I appreciate you came on the podcast. It means a lot to me, and I'm sure our listeners are going to get a lot out of your story. Lana, let's just start with that. What is your story? Can you tell us the story of how you became an Aguna? Okay. Basically, this was a second marriage for both of us. And after a few weeks, I saw that there were major issues and tried to 
you know, eventually tried to go through th for therapy and everything else to try to keep this marriage together to see if there was anything we could work out because there were children involved. And um, I, I became pregnant with, uh, with our son within a very short time. And then I saw uh, that mayor had, was just very difficult to live with. And we tried to go to therapy, but every time it was always, he always pointed at the fingers at me and there was nowhere to have a resolution. So after a few years of trying to work this out and after seeing how hard it was for my children who were young, very young at the time and how, how difficult he was with my children, how I don't even want to go into it. it was just awful, awful, an awful situation. Very, he was a very uh, abusive, controlling, and difficult person to live with. And so I said, okay, let's just, why don't we just get divorced? This is, and I asked for a get in December 2004. And he said, you'll never get a get. And I don't, and he said terrible things to me. And Basically, I've been dealing with Bate Din, everything for over 18 years. Still don't have a get after over 18 years. Now, How long, Lana, were you married to Mayor? We got civilly divorced in 2007. It took years to get civilly divorced. And you first got married to him at what year? I got married to him in uh, July 4th, July 4th, 2000. July 4th, 2000. So you were really married to him only for about four years before you realized that there was no solving this problem, no, there was, was no saving this marriage. For, no, I was worried for him for about two months. And I saw how all his problems and how difficult he was to live with him. There was something really wrong. There was like a, a, like a hole in his conscience. I can't even explain. It was not li living with a regular person. There was something really off and difficult to live with. And I tried to work it out because there were children involved. And because I became pregnant with our son and it was impossible to, we went through different therapists and I asked for a get in 2004. He moved to California to, there's a get law in New York. So he moved to California and lived there for six months in order to circumvent the get law and divorce me in California where there was no get law so that he could get away with not giving a get. And then he got married. Subsequently, he got married without giving a get as well in 2014. Like he just kept dating and doing whatever he wanted and kept tried to keep me uh, controlled in a um, like in a cage. Lana, from his perspective, and I'm asking you to sort of interpret what's going on when he said, "You're never going to get a get from me," which is, I think, what you said that he told you when you asked for a get. Did he give any reasoning? Was it just to be cruel? Did he have some sort of strange, bizarre justification? Or was he just openly, I don't care? He was, it was said with a lot of anger. So I'm sure he was upset that I wanted to end the marriage. And I, I'm not a person who says nibble pet. I don't go saying, he said a lot of things. He said a lot of, he said things that were very, um, he was very, he, he Very said, inappropriate. I Very remember the comments. Let's put it that I remember way. the comments. There was a lot of, a lot of, right, one comment in particular, I can't even say it, it's that bad. It's just really, he was out to destroy my life, the way he talks. And that's, you could see, by the way, he, this whole game he's playing, where he tells people he gave me a, see, a, a lot of people, they think, they always say, oh, there's two sides to every story. So they hear his side. His side is, that's what you're asking me, what his side is, Right. His side is he gave me again and I won't take it. And that's not just his side, but his immediate family and friends, they say the same thing. He gave me a get and I won't take it. And supposedly, nobody's ever seen this get. No one I know has seen this get, but there's supposedly a get sitting from just waiting for me at this uh, based in of Gestetner and Abraham. Abraham is the Rep Svidov Abraham is the rabbi who he who mayor hired to fly across country to be Masada Kadushin at his wedding in Vegas um, in March, I think it was March 20th, uh, 2014, that he was one of these rabbis that supposedly holding my get, and that, that he's not alive anymore, this Abraham. He had a, a very strange death, had a heart attack on the way to the dentist. It was very strange the way when it happened. 
Now this base din is not even a normal base din. People don't recognize this base din. We don't, I, there's, every time I've tried to call or had other people call, or we, there were even rally, rallies in front of this based in this person's house on 17 Mosher, this Abraham Gestetner. Nobody's been able to get the get. I have recordings of this Abraham and how he tried to, um, he wanted me to sleep with him. He wanted my daughter to sleep with him in order to get the get. I mean, the get was supposedly tied to half a million dollars, but a rabbi, I met with Rabbi Langer from California who told me that quietly, they offered Mayor this half a million dollars, and now he's asking for three million. He also wanted um, he wanted uh, when my son, our son, was younger, he wanted custody of our son. I sent our son for visitation. That I did. I didn't. I didn't want to ruin. Like I feel like there's two parents in a relationship, even if one is very difficult. And I wanted to, our son to be raised with a father, so I sent him to Vegas. I did whatever I could, but I did not. Um, but I would not give up custody of Moshe because I didn't think it was in his best interest to be raised by his father. So I'd like to ask Daniel a question now about this bait-in of Abraham and Gestetner in Muncie. What exactly is this bait-in? It seems that it is universally rejected. When I say universally rejected, please correct me if I'm wrong, but that means the RCA, Satmar, and everyone in between says this Beitin is not a kosher Beitin, and a get issued by this Beitin presumably isn't even a kosher get anyway, even if the get existed there. So I want to ask you, Daniel, what is the nature of this Beitin, and what is their motivations, Gestetner and Abraham when he was alive, for putting this together and... I don't even know what to say. I'm not sure it's extortion or something else, but doing this this kind of behavior. Yeah, um, I'll, yeah, I'll get to that. I just want to just want to back up one 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 second um, and just just amplify a little bit um, what Lana said. I represented Lana actually in New York um, in the divorce as well. Lana, but Lana and I have had a relationship going back now about 20 years. She's been one of my favorite clients um, ever since then. You ask uh, what might have been motivating Mayor, you know, to to do this and to continue um, to act in a fashion so devastating um, to Lana. I don't know 100 um, percent. I do recall some of the more vile comments that Mayor made um, about the get. And I also remember the smirk on his face as he made them in a divorce. There are expectations with regard to equitable distribution of marital assets. And people, you know, the, the, the lesser moneyed spouse very often will have an expectation of receiving, you know, a certain financial um, distribution of assets. That didn't happen um, in this case. Um, again, I'm not putting words into anybody's mouth, but there were times when Mayor, you know, offered to sell the get. He want he wanted money. Um, there were certain procedural things that happened in the divorce as well, as well which put Mayor at a, at a significant disadvantage. But that's just how it went. I think ultimately what happened was is that Mayor made a name for himself as being, so to speak, you know, Melech Agnim. He's like the king of people who don't want to give a get. And if I recall, Keshet, I think when you were interviewed on this podcast about a year or so ago, you made an observation about men generally who play these games with a get that they're not the most important people in the world. They don't have an awful lot going for them. I think that was sort of some of the, some of the language that you used. Um, but again, you know, in the land of the blind, the one-eyed man is king, and Mayer is the one-eyed man in the community of people who don't want to give the get. And I think his identity and his self-concept is so tied up in this idea that he's going to continue to torture Lana by not giving the get that it's going to be Herculean um, to get him to give it. Now, to answer your question with regard to with regard to um, Gestetner, I first heard about Gestetner maybe about 24, 25 years ago when I was when I was first starting to practice law. And I recall that there was a letter that went out by a number of heads of Bate Din in the United States, like local, local Bate Din. For example, I recall that there were a number of rabbis in Rockland County who signed on to it, who had Bate Din or who were involved in Dayanut. I, I recall the administrator of the Bate Din in Detroit had signed on to the letter. I believe the Chicago Rabbinical Council had signed on to it as well as I believe there's another more Haredi Beitin in Chicago as well. They had, they had signed on to it. If I'm not mistaken, it could very well even be Cadacia in London had signed on to this letter as well, um, where they all said that decisions, any Psak Din, any Psak Halacha, 
of this Beitin of um, Tzvid of Abraham and, uh, and Gestetner is invalid ab initio. Simply nothing that they do is recognized. At the time, I didn't really understand why that was, but I just sort of remember that it happened because it was remarkable to me that there was, there was there's so much near universal consensus. Later on, I came to learn that around the same time, the first of two letters from the Muetzat HaRabinu Tarashit in Israel came out where they said as well that Gitin from this, uh, from, from this Beitin will not be recognized. Um, and there are two letters um, that came out. Um, I have them both from the, the, what should we call it, the managers of the Lishkot of the Rabbanim Harashim in Israel saying that they don't recognize this Beitin um, at all. And then additionally, there are private letters. Was a pri- I think there was a, a private letter that was, that was promulgated among activists um, in the Aguna world, sent out to a number of very, very prominent rabbis in Russian yeshiva in the United States. It's a uniform form letter. Um, I think there's about 30 signatures to that letter um, that I have um, as well. As to what motivates them to do this, I don't know. I've heard rumors, perhaps, that you know one of the two, that one of the Dayanim there lost a very, very bad Dintar and decided they're going to take their revenge on the Beitin system completely. But I don't, I don't know what the motivation is, except this is, this is the Beitin, which is the last redoubt for men who don't want to give a get, but still want to create some sort of an artifice of halachic compliance. Gestetner has his, ha, you know, has his form where he, I don't know, he quotes seventy-five or a hundred, whatever, whatever number, you know, of of shutim um, on that very, very difficult to read because it's been xeroxed so many times, um, you know, printed form that he has. I'm not, I'm not a rabbi. I'm not a post. The only thing I can say is apparently, you know, mainstream respected poskim, well, they disagree completely with Gestetner's halachic take on things. Okay, I want to take what you just said, Daniel, and extend it a little bit and bring Keshet into the conversation, because I'm going back to something you mentioned a couple minutes ago about men who usually get as leverage for money, and that's often a motivation for withholding a get. I am not agreeing with the following statement. I'm vigorously and vehemently disagreeing with it. However, people have sometimes said to me, in defense, so to speak, of men who are withholding a get, well, of course they should not withhold the get, but sometimes what recourse do they have in an unfair system which completely favors the wives and gives them almost everything, including full custody? Should a man argue that point, Keshet, what would you say in response? So I love that you asked me that because that's probably the question that makes me the craziest of all questions ever. Here's what it comes down to. That question, and we get it a lot, so it's so important that you brought it up, is based on an understanding of the court system that is at least 20 to 30 years out of date. You do not walk into court as a woman and get whatever you want. You do not walk into court as a mother and get whatever you want. Actually, more and more states are now establishing that the default is joint custody based on the legislation that it's actually written into the law that we start with joint custody. If you walk into court, even as a survivor of severe domestic abuse, you are almost certainly going to walk out with joint custody, at least joint physical custody, which is based on where the child lives, if not joint decision making. So it's a premise that's really based on a very, very incorrect assumption and something that may have been true in 1972, but is not true in 2022. And the second thing that I'll say is that, you know, I'm a champion for Agunot and that's my cause, but I also never lose sight of the fact that the most vulnerable players, so to speak, the most vulnerable participants in a divorce are the children. They have very few opportunities to share what they need. And what custody is really about, it's actually not about anyone's rights, men's rights or women's rights or mother's or father's. Custody is about what is best for that child. And the truth is, if everyone is reasonably healthy, it is best for the child to have meaningful time with both parents. And what that looks like logistically is going to vary. But again, we want custody decisions to be made based on a fair and reasonable process. If mom and dad can come together with a mediator, you know, with just conversation and come up with a plan, amazing. If they can't do that, then we want a beat in a court, some sort of neutral third party to make that call. But when someone effectively holds a gun to the other person's head and says, 
says, you want a a future, you're going to give me what I want with regards to these children. You are putting children in an extremely vulnerable situation and their likelihood of coming out with a plan that protects their safety, even on a physical level, let alone their emotional needs is really, really not likely. So what I would say is that if we care about children, which I think in the Jewish community, you know, we generally really do, then we want these decisions being made in a fair way. And we don't want extortion to lead to custody results because I have worked on more cases than I can count where parents who are convicted of child sexual abuse are using the get as leverage to get time with their children. And I've seen that. I I can't even count the amount of times that I see that. So there are real safety issues here. And we just want to make sure that when it comes to such a vulnerable population, that we're making these decisions fairly. And I think that is just more important that I can possibly state, we want to get to a good result. And how do we get there? Not with get refusal and extortion. That is not going to get us to a good place. So that was a very long answer to your question, but I think it's it's so important. I agree completely. It reminds me a little bit of something that I was reading this past Shabbat by Rabbi Sachs, that's all. And it wasn't in this context whatsoever. He was actually talking about abortion and some other moral issues and quandaries that we have. And he talked about the need to transition from talking about rights to obligations or duties. And that's really what you're talking about, our obligation to the children rather than my right as a parent to raise my child the way I want to. What is the best thing for the children? I think that's a very important point. Daniel, did you want to add something? I I do want to add just just one thing, because you asked the question, is it a fair negotiating tactic? And Kesha, you know, focused very, very rightly um, on what ought to be always the first um, consideration of divorce, which is making sure the needs of the children are going to be met um, before you get to anybody else's, you know, issues that arise out of a divorce. I, I, you know, it's been a while, it's been about, well, it's been six years since I've practiced law in the United States. I made Aliyah six years ago. But, you know, I did a lot of divorce. And I did a lot of divorce in the Orthodox Jewish community um, and also in the Haredi and in the, in the Hasidic communities. When it comes to divorce, there's there's a sociology that exists. It's a sociology that I don't especially, you know, like as an outsider looking into it, but but it does exist, which is even if there isn't a threat made with regard to holding up um, the get, everybody sort of understands that there's going to be a price paid for the get. And, and I'm not talking about monsters of fathers. I'm not talking about even bad guys. There's just an expectation. You know, she wants she she wants to get. She doesn't want to be my wife anymore. Okay, fine. I got to get something for it. You know, I I I've invest I've invested time, years, and uh, you know, and energy in, into this marriage and into this family. I'm going to have to go now and go do it all over again. But now I'm going to be divorced, which gives me a bit. You know, whatever the reputation, you know, there is of that. I'm I'm, I'm going to get something for this get. It's 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 an undercurrent. It's just simply there. All right. Even the idea, which is standard and all butted in everywhere, that a woman will wave her ketubah. When she receives the get, okay, so it's predicated upon the fact that the finances are being done secularly in a court, you know, in a courthouse and not and not in debate. But even you know, even that idea, you know, it's a halachic right, and you're in a halachic uh, halachic forum. But just it's taken as a given. That negotiation, at least to my experience, it always existed. It's always there. The bad, horrible cases is where it's you know outrightly stated and abused. And done by people in communities where you, where you wouldn't expect that there's even, you know, that, that, that little bit of an undercurrent. But again, in the Haredi communities, there is some, you know, all the negotiations are predicated upon the fact that, yes, the husband has to give the get. And we're going to, we have, and we have, we have to be cognizant of, the, of that issue. And the parties reach a settlement and everybody, everybody walks away, you know, satisfied. I'm not, you know, I, again, I'm not trying to be pejorative of any community, but that's, that, that's just what exists. It's interesting because we get a number of outreaches at ORA where someone will say, you have to help this guy. He gave a get and then he's not happy with the settlement. He didn't get what he wanted. And I think it really speaks to that undercurrent that, you know, Daniel is talking about, that there really is an expectation that the get should come with a price, some sort of an insurance policy, a guarantee. And I think 
that's where we need to work as a community on reframing the issue. So for example, I haven't assaulted anyone today, but no one's going to send me an Amazon gift card to thank me for my restraint, right? We assume as a society that's outside the bounds. If you do that, there are consequences, but we're not rewarding you for not doing that. And I really feel that it is much more built in than we realize this idea that if I gave a get and I wasn't happy, there's a problem that the get should come with some kind of leverage, even if it's just a sense of sort of assurance that I'm going to be comfortable with the result. And that's not how it goes. And that's not how it is on the other end, of course. So I think that's an area where we we have to reframe the way we talk about this. Okay, Lana, I want to come back to the rest of your story in just a moment because we're not quite done. There's more to the story. But before we get there, I want to ask Keshet another question because Keshet, I saw when Daniel was talking about mayors being the king of the get refusers, so to speak, I saw you nodding in agreement. And I wanted to ask you in general, what is often the motivation, apart from the financial issues we mentioned, what is the motivation for men who are get refusers in their warped perspective? What are they trying to do? Is it simply to punish their wives? Or is there some logical, strange justification that they actually have in their own heads? It's a great question. It definitely varies a little bit. But I think, again, there's a really close link between domestic abuse and get refusal. And get refusal is itself a form of abuse. And over 96% of the um, cases that we're working on at ORA self-report multiple types of abuse and severe types of abuse. And what clicked for me, I was working on one case where the get refuser was very angry at me personally. And I realized sort of all of a sudden that he really saw his wife as a possession of his, as something that he owned. And to him, it was like I broke into his apartment and stole his television set off the wall and walked right out with it. How dare you? And there was really this sense of like, you don't get to do that. And I do feel, and this ties into that control piece, abuse is not about hitting. It may involve that. It may not. But abuse involves control. I own you. You are not a separate person that gets to make your own decisions. And you especially don't get to decide that you want to live leave. That's the ultimate decision that you're not allowed to make. And I think that sense of ownership is really an undercurrent in many, many of these cases. Now, abusers are also generally smart, not always, but many of them are smart and well-spoken. So they're not going to walk around saying, I see my wife as a piece of property that I own, and so I'm going to control her. Instead, they're usually going to say, I'm doing this for my kids. I love my kids. I would walk through fire for my kids. If they're smart, they're going to say something like that. They might say, you know, this is a really complicated divorce. And before you tell me what to do, let me send you 20 pounds of litigation records. And once you read all of them, then you can have an opinion. And eventually, when the civil divorce is over, at which point they lose a lot of social support, then they're going to say, well, you don't understand how complicated it is. She still owes me money. She's not following the agreement. They're going to have some narrative that they're sharing, and they might believe it on some level. But I do think there's a core element of you belong to me and you don't get to decide that you want to have a different life apart from me. And I'm if, and if you need me to do something in order to facilitate you having that new and separate life, forget it. I'm not doing that. Okay. That's really interesting. That's a pretty scary perspective. But unfortunately, I understand where it comes from. People look at the whole idea of the kinyan of a kedushin to be representative of I am buying the woman, which is obviously not what we mean, but that is how people interpret it. Well, and unfortunately, the they can take it way too far. It's certainly not, it's certainly not what the Rambam says. In terms of what the king, I'm not saying that's what it means. Right. I'm saying that's the language is conducive to that kind of thinking. Right. Should someone be predisposed to think that way? Let me put it like yeah, that. Again, again, you know, I think you know. Again, I think I think I think a young yeshiva boy in the tenth grade who learns the first mission in kedushin, okay, we'll walk away with that impression until he reads the Rambam. I mean, the Rambam is very explicit. I'm not, you know, about about what the king in kedushin actually is and what's what's being transacted, and it's not. It's it's not it's not a sheep with her goof. It's not it's not a, it's not a physical ownership. That's for sure. <laughs> I'm certainly not arguing that point. I'm simply telling you, saying why yeah. I see why people who want to misunderstand can point to a line in a Mishnah and say that's why. Anyway, yeah. uh, I, I want to go back to Lana and 
talk about the rest of your story because recently there was a Supreme Court case. And in order to get into that, can you give the background? I'm talking about the Supreme Court in Israel and your specific case with Mayer. What happened to lead up to that and what happened in Israel after that? I would appreciate it if I could just explain to you, just expound a little on what Keshet and Daniel were saying about get refusers. It's not just the get refusal. Mayor, the reason they call him the king of all get refusers is that he actually produces YouTube videos, trains other get refusers. I know I have I know a few people who are also Agunot who've said to me privately, one of them said privately, I don't know where my ex is, I can't find they can't find him. And then it turned out that he was with Mayor Kin. He in Vegas, he uh, houses them, he shelters them, he guides them, trains them. His li- and it's not like he did this in the past and is not doing it now. This is a constant current, uh, you know, this is constantly and current. Just about two weeks ago, he just put out another video on his, you know, YouTube channel. And it's almost like he's gaining power because the get other get refusers respect him. He's gaining respect. He's this powerful man who is standing strong and not giving that get and teaching everyone how it's like a whole, it's becoming almost like a cult. In preparation for this interview, I actually looked up that YouTube channel and he's got a lot of videos and they have hundreds of views. It's very disturbing. It's disturbing. It's warped. And something has to stop because what's going to happen to our future daughters? You know, every, you know, you keep hearing about new cases. I'm sure Keshet knows. And uh, not everybody signs that halachic prenup, unfortunately. Yeah, we'll talk about that in a few minutes. So let's get into the story now of what happened about the burial in Israel. People need to understand that I normally would have nothing against Mayor's family. Normally, I wouldn't blame them for anything. But in this case, his, and his family has been supporting him throughout this, which has made it very difficult and almost impossible for me to get a get. For instance, several of his relatives, immediate relatives, came to his wedding in Vegas that, you know, when he got married without giving a get. Uh, several of his relatives tell people that he gave, they continue with his story. They support his story that he gave me a get and I won't take it. And... It's it's a big problem, and even his mother, his his late mother, um, they in Israel she was going to be buried, and then the burial was delayed. I'm sure that story is known. That was in the papers. Well, well, let's explain what the story is in case our listeners do not know. Okay, uh, his mother passed away a few years ago, and her body. She has a plot in Har Hazaytim, so her body was taken to. The Nifteris was taken to Eretz Yisrael, and there were several, uh, several rab- well-known rabbanim across America that knew my case and decided to contact uh, somebody in Eretz Yisrael. I think it was, I'm not exactly who, sh- I don't want to say the wrong thing, but they contacted somebody who... Can I butt in just for, for the sake of accuracy? Yes. There was, there was a psak din that was issued by the Agudat rabbanim in New York. Um, when Mayer's mother passed away, which stated explicitly, "Hey Yot, since he doesn't, since Mayer is not divorcing Alana per halacha, we therefore feel and we therefore paskin that Mrs. Kin should not be buried," and that and there was an attempt to have that enforced very very quickly um, in Israel uh, via the offices of the then chief rabbi David Lau. I'm not sure. I think that's based on a Ramah, if I'm correct. I could be wrong about that, though. Well, yes. it was based. It was it's ba- it was based on a Ramah, but more directly, it was based on a Tshuva of Rav Yitzchak Zilberstein. Okay. Okay. So, Lana, let's continue with the story now. So, they have this psak that she should not be buried. Yes, and it wasn't the Agudas Rabbanim finalized the psak, but I know several rabbis involved in California and and other states all across the country because they contacted me, and they were I was all ready to get a get at that moment. They had a base in and everything ready. And the the brothers, so the brothers were there, Aaron and um, Eliyahu, two brothers. And instead of insisting to their brother, Mayor, that he give me a get, they left their mother's body on the tarmac for 10 hours or however long. And they did had some connections somehow. I think with Ede based in Haredes, that I, I then behind closed doors, they made a deal. Supposedly they were going to help with a the get. They did zero. They did not help at all. And 
and they there was supposedly they were if they didn't help they're supposed to pay i think twenty thousand dollars but i don't even know what happened with that nobody I, I i was in israel i asked about it nobody seemed to know anything and that was forgotten meanwhile years later never had to get never got to get and she was buried in israel she normally. was buried but they you know if they were if you have if someone has respect for their mother they wouldn't even want her to be lying there while they're deliberating they should have just had mayor give the get immediately she would have been buried it's really a warped situation. I mean, you see the support in the family. So the rabbis in California got very frustrated, the Rabbinical Council of California, and they, and that's the main rabbinate of California. And I'm from California and mayor is, uh, I'm originally from California and so is my ex. And they made a psaac that the relatives, the immediate relatives who are aiding and abetting mayor are now in Cheyram. People are not supposed to do business with them. They're not supposed to. There's a whole list as the Harchakos Derabenutam, like you um, mentioned. But the one that they were trying to enforce is that they're not supposed to be buried in a Jewish cemetery. Now, it, it wasn't taken that far. They just said that this case is about that none of them should be able to be buried in Eretz Israel. The bodies should not be able to be brought to Eretz Israel. Well, that's not the Psach. That, that wasn't the Psach. The Psach was that they should not receive Kaver Yisrael. They should not be buried no, I understand. in the Jewish I understand cemetery. The Psach, but, the, but they're not trying to enforce that in the in uh, court. In the oh, Supreme we're doing court. here in Israel. Oh, we're, we're doing here in Israel something else. Yeah. Right. Okay, so then what happened, though, with the recent Supreme Court? What was that about? If that is the Psach, and I understand, though I could be wrong, that the chief rabbi, Rabbi Lau, backs that Psach and agrees with that Psach. So why... Is there still a chance of Mayor's father, when the time comes, being buried in Israel? What's happening with that? So what we did was, because Israel is the only nation in the world in which marriage and divorce is bounded by Jewish law um, entirely, um, and in recognition of that, Israel does have certain statutes in which it assumes international jurisdiction over Jewish divorce. Um, over the giving of a get, not over, let's say, distribution of property, not over child support, certainly not over custody and visitation um, with the children. But simply when it comes to the giving of the get, Israel does have certain statutes in which it will assume it will assume international jurisdiction. For example, if somebody who is not giving a get is found in Israel within the borders of Israel, a an action for a divorce can be started and an application can be made to the rabbinic court to enjoin that person and to stop that person from leaving Israel until that matter is adjudicated, all right? And there have been cases, you know, where this has happened. That's number one. Number two, Israel has some some, does have some fairly aggressive legislative mechanisms to cajole compliance with the psaac of the Beit Din Harabani here in Israel to give the get. Many people criticize and say the problem in Israel is that um, yes, those things exist on the books, but it takes a very, very long time until you'll have a baiting which is ready to actually implement them and enforce them. If they'd be a little bit faster to do that, you would resolve a lot of problems as well. But that's, that's, that's a conversation for a different day. On the books, there are these mechanisms. What we did over here was we found a provision in the international, in the international jurisdiction section of the, of the Rabbinic uh, Courts Act which says that even when you don't have a basis for any other jurisdiction whatsoever, nobody's found, nobody's in Israel, the parties are not Israeli citizens, you know, when you have absolutely nothing else, you can ask the president of the rabbinical courts to impanel a special rabbinic panel to issue an advice, to, to issue an opinion, a chavadat is, is what the statute says, a judicial opinion with regard to any issue concerning a divorce anywhere in the world. Interestingly enough, that paragraph, number one, there was never a case that was brought for a court to interpret it. And there was absolutely no legislative history explaining why it was enacted. It's just there and nobody knows what it means. My partner and I looked at it and said, let's try it. What we did was we went first to the Rabbanut HaRashi, to Rabbi Yitzchak Yosef, who is now the Rav HaRashi. And we asked him, if he would enforce the Psak Din from California that Lana talked about. They wrote back to us and they said, we don't believe we have the ability to do this. You have to go to the Beit Din Harabani. 
in reliance on that provision, Arba Gimel, for Gimel of the statute, we asked the Nasi of the Batei Din Rabbanigim, who is right now Harav David Lau, we asked him to impanel a special panel to rule on whether or not, as a matter of halacha, that Psaq from California should be applied and enforced in Israel. Harav Uriel Lavi and his Herkev, his, uh, his, his rabbinic panel, his Beit Din, they were appointed. Uri Yalavi, by the way, is somebody who's known in the world of Psaq Halach. If anybody remembers the Tzfat Get, which was, you know, where a man was in a coma, irreversible coma, and the Beit Din stepped in and gave the Get to his wife on, on his behalf in a very, very long uh, tshuva written by Uri Yalavi. He was the one who, who, who devised um, that mechanism as well. Uri Yalavi considered the file um, and ruled that, yeah, it should be applied in Israel. We then took this Chavadat back to the Rabbanu Tarashi and asked them and said, look, you now have a Chavadat from the Batei Din Rabbaniyim in Israel, an Israeli court. Would you please now enforce the, the, um, the Psaq from California? The Rabbanut said, we still don't believe we have the jurisdiction over it. And therefore, what you do is in an administrative proceeding such as that in Israel, where you're not getting the administrative relief that you're asking for, you go to the Israeli Supreme Court. And, and Daniel, just and so, just to make sure are. I'm clear on this, this is talking about yeah. Mayor's mother already died. This is talking about any future relatives who are supporting him. That's the mayor, people we're talking about. Mayor, it's the, the, psaac, the psaac applies to, to Mayor the Ma'again, as well as members of his family. And as Scott, as you said before, it's based upon a Ramah in Evan Ezer. More specifically, in our case, there was before, I believe before the Agudat HaRabanim in New York issued their psaac, they sent their query to Rav Yitzchak Zilberstein, who is a very, very well-respected mainstream posek here in Israel. He wrote a specific tshuva with regard to this case where he said, yes, members of the family should not be buried, you know, in light of what's now 19 years of, um, of just craziness. So at that point, Daniel, if you can continue yeah. the story, you went to the Supreme Court and what happened? Okay, we filed in the Supreme Court. Now, you know, early on, it became clear, it became obvious to us, and this was also, in, you know, in conversations that we had with other attorneys involved, that this case is about is about more than just the Rabbanu Tarashit, because bringing a body to Israel for burial involves a number of different certifications and a number of different governmental actors. There is the Ministry of the Interior. There is the Health Department. There is also the Rabbanut, who is the, the Mifakech, who is the supervisor of all Jewish burial. And by the way, every Hebra Kaddisha practically in Israel, their license to operate has a specific paragraph that says, you must follow the directions of the Rabbanut Tarashit at every given point. And that was also part of our theory, why we believe the Rabbanut Tarashit can prevent these burials. Um, but there are a number of different governmental um, agencies you know, that have to be involved in this and various certifications that have to be made. And then at the same time, you run up against Psak Din Gez, which was a, an Israeli Supreme Court decision concerning someone who had not given his get in Israel. And there was a request that was made at that point to not, not bury this man when he died. Justice Rubinstein, in that opinion, um, there's a long analysis of it, but essentially he came down and he said, look, once a man who's not giving his wife a get has died, she's no longer an Aguna. There's no reason not to bury him because she, she has now been freed you know, by the advent of this man's death. Difficult though it was, and, you know, and, and horribly the way he acted. Now, there's a backdrop to that, though, because Israel's social security law guarantees a right to burial to anybody who dies in Israel. Oded Gez was, was an Israeli citizen living in Israel, and therefore to deny him burial, you know, you run, you run, up, another, uh, run up against another statutory um, issue. The Kins, however, Wait, can I ask you a question about that? I realize this might be yeah. a side point. It's relevant to the Mayor Kin situation. Yeah. The denial of burial for a non-Israeli, is that also guaranteed by Israeli law? Well, it's not a denial of burial. It's just somebody who's not uh, doesn't live in Israel. No, but somebody who's flown to Israel for burial, can Israel legally deny that person burial? Well, there's, is that included believe, in, that st in that statute? We it's not, it's, it's, not, it's not included. It's not included in the statute, but we believe, yes, we believe that, yes, somebody who does not live in Israel when they die does not have a guaranteed right to, cut, to be brought to Israel for burial. My partner, you know, very, very often, he, he says it humorously, but it's actually a very, very good point. You know, there are two kinds of aliyah. 
there's vertical aliyah when you're when you're when you're alive and you walk into Israel. And there's horizontal aliyah that when you're dead and you're brought to Israel for you know for for burial. And people who don't give a get, and now in our opinion, people who support those who don't give a get shouldn't be allowed to make horizontal aliyah. Because if they made vertical aliyah, if Mayor would have made vertical aliyah, there would be a whole host of of, of of legal mechanisms that we could employ to try to get a get out of him. Okay, I don't want to get too far into the weeds here, but briefly, what did the Supreme Court decide? And then we can move on from there. Okay, so the Supreme Court does not paskin halacha. It is, a, it, is, it is a secular body. Obviously, it's very, very well aware of the fact that in many ways there is no separation of church and state in Israel especially with regard to marriage and with regard to burial, um, the earliest Jewish burial. Um, and the Supreme Court essentially, um, you know, said their attitude toward us was this has to be something specifically with regard to the Rabbanut has to decide. And to a degree, that was that, that's what we were asking the Supreme Court to, to do all along, was to please tell the Rabbanut that they are the power empowered to make this decision. At the last minute, the Rabbanut agreed to bring this matter before the Mu'atzat HaRabanut HaRashit, which is the chief rabbinical council. It's a council made up of the, of the, of, of the chief rabbis, the rabbis of Tel Aviv, um, Yerushalayim, and Haifa, I think it is, of the big cities, plus a number of other very, very, very important, well-respected rabbis who are appointed to this council. They agree that they're going to bring it up to a meeting there for them to uh, come to a, a consensus, and they'll articula- articulate a position. And the Supreme Court adjourned the matter for three months for the uh, for the chief rabbinate uh, to do that. Last question. Yeah. Why is it, as far as you know, perhaps this is speculation, why is it that the chief rabbinate said, we have no jurisdiction here and kicked it to the Supreme Court? The Supreme Court then says, we don't have jurisdiction and kicked it back to the rabbinate. Why did the rabbinate not want jurisdiction? Usually it's the other way around. You ask for jurisdiction. Yeah, I was I was I'm puzzled, by I'm puzzled by that as well. Um, and I think I just want to say this as well. This is this is a case which has never been tried, literally anywhere in the world, uh, but more importantly, not in Israel. And you know, when you're when you're doing something like that, a lot of times the answer, even even about something like jurisdiction, isn't necessarily going to be so clear. Even though in our office we're a hundred percent convinced and always were the jurisdiction was there, I, I can I can devise you know maybe in my head you know, intellectual scenarios where somebody might say, well, let's take a step back and look at this twice, three times, and four times. That's the advantage in in completely new litigation, which is, hey, you can, you know, you can break new ground. It's the disadvantage that people have to be very, very responsible and be very, very cautious when, when they step into that complete fog. So again, trying to, trying to interpret what's happened here most charitably, and I think it's appropriate to do that. Um, I think everybody operated and is, and is continuing to operate out of an abundance of caution, because at the end of the day, yes, there are still people's rights that are that are involved uh, um, as well. So every, I think you know that's a response. That's one of the responsible ways to deal uh, with these kinds of questions. Additionally, I'm just going to point out, you know, Rav Lavi in his Chavadat, he does reference a tshuva from Harav Avadu Yosef Zichonolivracha, where he said. In his opinion, this type of uh, a measure of not burying isn't something which should be really applied. Um, well, he was writing in the 20th century, but the 20th or you know, or, or 20 or 21st century. Harav Yitzchak Yosef, who is Harav Avad Yosef's son, I would imagine is reticent to ever paskin against um, his father. We're hoping, you know, that the other members of the Moitza will carry the day. We'll, we'll see it. We'll see things our way and we'll, we'll carry the day. And, and hopefully, um, you know, this will happen. The Moitza, as I understand, operates on a majority vote, you know, up-down majority vote. All right. Keshet, I want to go back to you and ask you about some of the long-term consequences of this specific case, of Lana's case, the case of Mayor Kin, particularly the issue of the Supreme Court decision to send it back to the Rabbanut and should the Rabbanut in three months agree that burial in Israel will be denied to get refusers and their immediate family, do you think that this actually will have a real effect on things in the future? Or is that wishful thinking because the get refusers are not going to change who they are and they really are pretty stuck in this way of thinking? 
So the way I think about interventions to get refusal is that there's rarely a silver bullet. And obviously this is a, you know, it's only going to impact certain people, certain situations. So there's no one thing that's going to just solve everything. But what we want is a toolbox with really strong, effective tools that we can use for different cases. The reason this is important is twofold. First of all, in the U.S., our enforcement powers for any halachic violation are limited. We don't put people in jail for not giving gets, just like we don't put people in jail for eating bacon sandwiches. If you're violating halacha, you can do that. The state doesn't have a whole lot they can do. And trust me, it takes a lot of legal creativity to find opportunities within the American legal system to hold people accountable for the get. What Israel offers is a jurisdiction where that halachic violation can actually have sort of on the ground ramifications through the state. And that's enormously powerful. We have had multiple cases where just knowing that in Israel, if you have, say, someone who's Israeli and they might know, well, I might want to go back, just knowing that in Israel there would be a different accountability for their behavior can really change the way they think. And so we want people to know that the state of Israel takes this very seriously and is willing to enforce it. And the second piece is that people ask me all the time, how do these cases happen? How do you get to a place where 10, 20 years after a separation, there's still no get? And what I really believe, in addition to the ownership piece and all the things that I mentioned, the way these cases happen is that they start with support. And what you see is that over time, there's less and less support because once your buddy has been withholding a get for 11 years, it's a little awkward to still have them over for Shabbos and that support network gets smaller. But in the beginning, it's strong. And as the support network starts to fall away, the person is so entrenched in their position, it becomes part of their identity that now to move them is very, very difficult. So sending a message to friends and family members that you're not in charge of this person, you know, you're, I mean, you might be their mom, but in general, you're not their mom, you can't tell them what to do, but you're actually 100% responsible for the ways in which you engage with someone who is doing a terrible thing to another person. And that the choice to go to their wedding, to invite them to your wedding, to have them for Shabbos, to have them for Yantif. That is a choice that you are making as a family member or a friend and creating a sense of accountability around that choice. That you want to make that choice, you do you, but the Jewish community is going to react to that choice and we're going to hold you responsible for it and limit some of your options much later in your life um, or after as a result of that choice, I think that really sends a powerful message that supporting get refusers matters and that we notice it and that every single person has to really take responsibility for their own choices and how they engage with the get refusers in their life um, because it happens more often than you think. And I think that support, especially early on, is so fundamental. And this really sends a message about what type of support is not okay and what the consequences of that support might be. And Keshet, have you seen progress in this area? Have you seen a lessening of communal support for get refusers in your time as the head of ORA? Or is it something which happens in individual cases, but on the whole, there hasn't been massive change? On the whole, yes. I find that the argument is different. We have people who call us and say, I just want you to know I'm not a get refuser. And then we have a back and forth conversation about, well, if you're not a get refuser, then you should give a get, et cetera. But people are very conscious that they don't want to be defined as get refusers. We have had multiple cases recently where right before the case was going to go public within a day or two, they give the get. They don't want that publicity. And I also know of many cases where in one case, they actually had an intervention, like they, a group of friends sat down with someone and the guy even brought his attorney, it was a whole thing and said, you know, we understand that you're in a lot of pain and this is a hard moment in your life, but we can't be friends with you if you're going to do this. And the person gave a get. So never underestimate. Does it work every person all the time, every community? Of course not. But I really feel that the needle is moving and that communities are starting to realize that when they exercise sort of the power of relationships, especially in the beginning, it actually can have a profound impact on the choices that the get refuser or potential get refuser makes. I want to go back to Lana again, because what you're saying, Keshet, is hopeful. 
and it's encouraging. That doesn't change anything for Lana right now, although hopefully in the next three months, the Rabbanu will come up with a positive decision that might have an effect. And Lana, I hope you forgive me for asking this question, but how have you been able to do it? You've been waiting for 18 years, 19 years, and you have not received a get. And I am just astounded by the courage that it must take to be able to still talk about it, to have your head held high, and to continue moving forward. Perhaps this is an unanswerable question, but how have you emotionally been able to move forward with this hanging over you? That's actually a good question, because it's, it is extremely difficult. And you don't know me on a personal level. My nature is one that I like to help people. It hurts me to even have to be in court, in front of the Supreme Court, to, to you know, prevent a burial. I mean, that's crazy and outrageous. It's not my nature. I'm not a vindictive person trying to figure out how to hurt these people. I'm in a situation which is very frustrating, extremely difficult, and, 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 and nobody should ever have to be in this position because it's the pain is so difficult to describe because it's, it's almost like I have a cage around me. I walk around, I look like I'm free, but really I'm not. And what happened was through the years, I saw not just me, but I saw all these other women, some of them very young, some of them 30 years old, waiting 10 years for a get, like Chava Sharabani, different people, Nachama Wasserman, you know, she's young, all these people. And I said to myself, I can't just stand by now that I know how hard it is and how long it can take to get a get. I have to be an advocate for these people and I have to try to change things. I really believe that that halachic prenup, there were a few cases that were the impetus for that. And I was told that my case was one of them. That was the impetus to have Rabbi Willig and Rabbi Shafter put that together. I was also told that there was in, from the California rabbinate that of recent Every case that they've had of get refusal, every single case in the past few years has been somehow linked to my ex, to Mayor Kin. So if I just stand by, it says, it says in Perkei it says, anashim ish. You know, if you see that no one else is doing something, you have to stand up. So I feel like it's almost like we don't understand why we're in this a position that we have, whatever we're given in life. And I feel like I have to stand up. I can't just, just let this go. I also know people who came from religious homes, some of them Hasidic, and they got stuck with this Gestetner based in that they didn't just do it to me. They did it to a whole bunch of people where the girls, these young girls, they're girls, they're in their 20s. They're stuck. They're trapped for years and years and years. It's totally extortion. And I have seen some of them stay from other ones went off the derech. And that's what's happening. It's destroying the whole fabric of Jewish religious society, the family, it's breaking down the family. It's not enough problem. There are so many divorces. Now we have to have a situation where people don't want to be from. The reason I stay in Yiddishkeit, the reason I stay from is because my parents raised me with true love of Yiddishkeit and Torah. And my father always said to me, the Torah is perfect and people are not. So I understand that there's something wrong with the system. It's not the Torah. It's the system. It's the way the rabbis did it. Maybe they meant well at the time with the ketuvah. It was something necessary hundreds of years ago, and it was to protect the women. But now this whole situation with the get that it has to be given willingly and all that has really become, people have corrupted it. That's how I feel. Keshet, I want to conclude with you based on what Lana just said. And she mentioned the halachic prenup and the importance of the halachic prenup. But in addition to the prenup, for women who are currently chained, for women who are unable to get a get, what can we, the public, do to help them? I know there was the Free Chava movement. There's been all sorts of social media attempts and demonstrations. What are the sorts of things that all of us, people listening and people in this conversation, can do to help Lana and all the other people who are suffering from this? I'd say number one, talk about it. This is a really easy issue to ignore because it's uncomfortable. It can raise complicated questions of faith and why is the Torah structured this way? And it brings up uncomfortable things. So it's easy to push it away, but talk about it. Don't be afraid to discuss it. Normalize this as something that happens as that and as something that we need to address. Second thing I would say, if we can just banish the term, there are two sides to every story. 
when a marriage is over, a get needs to be given. There's no other side, not with this. And we need to accept as a community that this is a norm. Marriage is over, give the get, the end. We don't need to ask constantly what the other side is. That's not necessary. And then I would say when you have someone in your life that is going through divorce to maintain, despite the fact that you might love this person, know this person, trust this person to still maintain as a principle, marriage is over, get needs to be given. And, and this might be a a counterintuitive view, but I actually feel that this behavior is destructive to the get refuser as well. They don't come out with a better life and a better future because they're making this choice. So really, if you care about someone, the best thing you can do is help them think about the future and not stay stuck in the conflict and the sort of cycle of revenge that is such a deep part of get refusal. And then I would say, stand up on cases, spread the word, whether it's, you know, sharing a post on social media or getting involved. If there's a case in your community, what can I do? There are unhelpful ways of getting involved. And it's super important to remember always that Agunod are grownups and they're very smart and you don't need to tell them what to do. You know, ask them if there's something you can do to help and follow their lead. But again, this is uncomfortable. And when things get awkward, we run for the exit. That is human nature, but we have to overcome that instinct if we want to see social change. And with the halachic prenup, I'll just point out very quickly, you can sign it as a post-nup. So if you're already married, it's not too late. You can host a post-nup party and we help coordinate these all the time where you actually invite other couples in your community and singles and just share what the prenup is and what it's about. And it doesn't have to be sort of heavy and miserable and scary. You can bring educational programming that we offer to your shul, to your schools. We have age-appropriate programming for high school students, college students. Most of all, we have to talk about this. If we don't talk about it, then we're definitely not going to fix it. So I think that's the first step. I just want to um, amplify one thing that Keshit said. I agree 100% that one of the important aspects of this case is that we're sending a message to people who support um, and enable the get refuser to continue to function um, in Jewish society. But in terms of being proactive, there's still a tremendous amount that has to happen um, in terms of anathematizing get refusers in Jewish society. It should not be tolerable ever for a get refuser, someone who is there's a psak din, that he has to give a get, it's called chayev ligaresh, that such a person should be allowed to come into shul. Let alone to be the 11th, I'm, I'm not even talking about to be one of the first 10. He can't be the 11th man in shul. He can't be the 30th man in shul. It's absolutely unconscionable to give such a man like that any sort of synagogue honor. The extension of that in this case is, I think the activist community in this has to now take the next step and start looking at legally available ways to start to communally punish and extra-communally punish people who help these men not give the get. That's, you know, that, that I think that's something which has to happen. I think this case is a first attempt uh, to, try to, uh, to try to start establishing that. Okay, and finally, Lana, let me let you have the last word. Any final words you want to convey to the people listening today about your case or about Aginut in general? I do want to say that if there are these occasionally din that are corrupt like this, I think that the rabbis in the community don't just, they don't really do that much. They just send a letter and put them in cherem, like this Gestetner Beithnid, so that the Beithnid can continue doing what it's doing. I think there should be stronger measures, more harsher measures. They shouldn't allow the person, you know, I don't know, like extreme things, not make it hard for them to function, to have a shul anywhere, to do anything. There shouldn't be support for someone like that. Like the, I've spoken to Gestetner's neighbors, immediate neighbors. They have no clue. Like they don't, they don't even know there's any issue. They say he's a quiet man, a dion. You know, I think that that's, that somebody has to look at, I don't see people looking at that aspect, but in general, I do appreciate that you, you and Aura, you know, Keshet and the people who are helping and the people who are trying to change this whole Aguna crisis and trying to do something about it and not just sitting back, all the people who are trying to do something about it and who actually care, that really, those, all you and all those people should have a bracha 
because they're doing something. They're not just sitting back. They see people who are misguided. They see a, a corruption of justice and you're all doing something. Okay. Well, thank you, Lana, very much for your courage in coming on and talking about your story so forthrightly. And thank you as well, Daniel Schwartz, Keshet Star, all three of you for talking with me today. Hopefully people will share this podcast and hopefully we'll get the word out further. And hopefully all of us as a community will do whatever necessary to help you, Lana, personally and Agunot in general. Thank you all. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much. Thanks, Scott. Great being here. Subscribe to The Orthodox Conundrum on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or anywhere else you get your podcasts. Please visit jewishcoffeehouse.com for other episodes of The Orthodox Conundrum, as well as many other great podcasts, including Intimate Judaism, The Mamanides Minute, Chochmat Nashim, The Francisca Show, and Let My People Eat. I'd appreciate it if you go to Apple Podcasts and rate and review The Orthodox Conundrum. It takes literally two minutes. It's just giving a certain number of stars and writing one or two sentences. Please like the Orthodox Conundrum podcast on Facebook and join our growing Facebook group, the Orthodox Conundrum Discussion Group, where you can feel free to discuss issues in orthodoxy in an honest and friendly environment. I hope you'll become a Jewish Coffeehouse patron on Patreon. Just click on the link in the description of this podcast and you can get bonus episodes, Jewish Coffeehouse merch, and more. You'll get special episodes on all sorts of topics that are only available to subscribers. And you'll be helping Jewish Coffeehouse spread our message of a welcoming, intellectually engaged, and honest orthodoxy. Just join Patreon. It's only a couple of dollars a month, and you can stop anytime, so join today. Finally, do you have a message that needs to get out? Do you want to promote your business, your organization, or your cause? The best way is by producing a podcast, and Jewish Coffee House can make it happen. I have experience producing hundreds of podcasts, both for myself and for satisfied clients. Whether you want to learn everything you need in one day, or relax and record and let me do the heavy lifting, Jewish Coffeehouse Productions will work with you to make it happen and make it even better than you imagined. Let me help you today. Write to me at scott at jewishcoffeehouse.com or go to jewishcoffeehouse.com, click on Productions, and sign up for a free consultation. Make your voice heard, promote your cause, sell your product, and engage an audience now. I'm Scott Kahn. This has been the Orthodox Conundrum on jewishcoffeehouse.com.